Hi, and welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Ember Kelly. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm the director of religious education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. Thanks so much for joining us today. What follows are selections from our service on May 15th, 2022. In this video, you'll hear the reading and the reflection. Following that, we hope that you'll join us for a lively discussion about the deeper service themes. You're invited to check out this video and audio podcast each week. It's posted on our Facebook, our website, our YouTube, Instagram, as well as many of your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we do hope you'll give us a positive review, the likes, the comments, the sharing, subscribing. This all helps to spread Fourth Universalist media further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community is located on the land of the Moonsay Lenape peoples. With this acknowledgement, we seek to continue the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we work to embrace the APU principle. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. The following reading is excerpted from Reverend Angel Cayota Williams' introduction to the book Radical Dharma, authored by her, Lama Rod Owens, and Dr. Jasmine Seadula. Radical Dharma, radical wisdom rooted in loving kindness, seeks to recognize, reflect, and amplify the searing truth power spoken from the inspiring leaders, national and local, who give voice and shape to the contours of this emerging movement. It seeks to provide a still point of reflection on deeper questions that live in people's hearts, even when these questions don't survive news cycles and social media feeds. For until our capital V vision for liberation gives way to an accessible, translatable, adaptable, yet rigorous praxis at a meaningful scale, one that can match in energy and rebound through rhythm from the sustained stress the structures of oppression are designed to burden our minds, bodies, and hearts with, we cannot uproot these forces. Radical Dharma brings a megaphone and a spotlight to these pursuits for liberation amplifying their virtues, and casting a light into the shadows that overwhelm their intentions. Over the last year, I've been wrestling with how to address a bit of a moral problem. Very often, I see people, public figures, and folks I know, assume that confrontation and love cannot coexist. I see this happen when activists or protesters identify some powerful person or institution as being responsible for a major problem in our world and demand that they take meaningful steps to address it. Someone sees that confrontation and jumps in to remind the protesters, organizers, activists to, quote, love their enemies. 
anti-racist uh, anti-racist organizers are reminded to love their enemies when they take over the streets demanding change on the scale required to unmake white supremacy in the United States. Environmental justice protesters are reminded to love their enemies when they demand that industrial giants stop fueling collapse. Abortion rights demonstrators are reminded to love their enemies when they fight for the right to bodily autonomy. And of course, loving one's enemies is absolutely noble. A love ethic, as bell hooks and others have called it, is a requirement in the struggle for justice. The problem is the assumption that these acts of confrontation always imply the absence of love. Most socially aware adults would agree, I think, that love and conflict can and must coexist in certain instances. But so often when we see conflict arise, the prevailing mainstream narrative assumption is that the protesters taking over the streets are hateful or unloving. And that's a dangerous leap. I think the greatest danger lies in the, in the way that this presumption of hate leads many people away from actively supporting these movements for social justice. I want to propose that, really, that to really live that love ethic, which bell hooks and other visionary thinkers and leaders have called us to, we must be courageous in confrontation. And that requires giving the benefit of the doubt to fighters. There's an old story that can help us picture our way through this. It's the parable of the ten pounds from the Gospel of Matthew, excuse me, the Gospel of Luke's 19th chapter. We're going to read it in a somewhat unorthodox way. Often the story has been interpreted as being one of God's justice and decisiveness in doling out rewards and punishments to the faithful and the unfaithful. That version goes something like this. A king who symbolizes Jesus goes away to a foreign land. When he leaves, there's an uprising of those who hate him, symbolizing the unfaithful, and upon his return, he sees who among his servants have been true and rewards them greatly and sees one who was disloyal and punishes him harshly. The king gives a speech at the end, which is traditionally interpreted to be a declaration that those with faith will see their blessings multiplied, but those without faith will see that what little spiritual fulfillment they may know wiped away. However, there's a scholar who reads that story quite differently. In his book, Parables as Subversive Speech, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed, the historian and scholar William R. Herzog III contends that when the historical Jesus spoke of a king who behaved despotically, he wasn't actually making a metaphor for God. Historically, Jesus was ministering to the poor, people dispossessed by Roman colonization. To that demographic, that class of dejected, propertyless day laborers, a king who got his authority from Rome, which they all did in those days, was a collaborator in their oppression. All this is to say that Herzog contends that in Jesus' parables, a tyrannical king probably represented a tyrannical king. 
And when we take up the parable in this light, it changes radically. Parallel to the story of a just God who rewards the faithful with even greater spiritual fulfillment, we can also read a reflection on the necessity of advocating with the oppressed, an object lesson in Jesus' own theory of social change. So let's go back through that parable with a little bit more detail and with a few necessary points of historically informed interpretation. A nobleman is preparing to go away to receive royal power, to be fully recognized as king by the empire. He calls a meeting with his trusted servants before he leaves and gives each of them a pound, the unit of currency, and instructs them to do business with that money in his absence. After he leaves, an uprising takes place, and the people say that they do not want this nobleman, soon to be king, to rule them. But he returns, fully a king, in the eyes of Rome. Upon his return, he meets his servants again. Some of them have invested their pounds and made significant profits, and he rewards these with rule over cities that are now fully and officially under his domain. These people have gone from servants to governors, just like that. He then, however, comes across the one servant who refused. And that man says to the king, Lord, this is a quote, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you. Because you were a harsh man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The king berates him, saying that if he knew all this about his lord, he should have at least put that pound into the bank so that he could have collected it with interest and wouldn't have been furious with him upon his return. He commands that pound to be taken away from that servant who refused and given to the one who reaped the greatest profit. The king then closes his tirade with two lines, the second of which is considerably less famous than the first. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. In the reading we're pursuing now, this man, this kind of power, is what Jesus very likely saw his movement as going up against. Clearly, within an ethics of love, we see this king as wrong in every conceivable, imaginable way. We see the royal servant who rebelled as well-intentioned and even courageous, but ultimately, not very impactful. In his own mind, he probably did everything right. He didn't join up with the rabble, he didn't disturb the peace, he didn't riot, he didn't take part in that uprising which seemed to so unlovingly confront the wrongdoer. But his individualistic sense that he had to make a statement to be the one who did things properly led him into a blunder so bad that he tipped off the oppressor to a movement against him. So, if we're faithful to that love ethic, 
we must allow it to demand that we do better than this. And luckily, in the immediate context of this parable, we get some very useful clues toward doing just that. The parable in the Gospel of Luke is told just as Jesus and his followers are on the road through Jericho. There, Jesus meets a man named Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector. For those of you more familiar with the Christian tradition, you may know a song about uh, Zacchaeus as the wee little man who was up a tree uh, so that he could see the movement coming into town. He stay, Jesus stays the night at Zacchaeus' house, and because he's wealthy from work with the Roman bureaucracy, many among the disciples are very upset that Jesus chose to meet with him and stay with him. In reply to this anger, Zacchaeus promises to give away half of his possessions and to repay fourfold anyone who he has wronged. And then... Jesus tells the parable. This is the moment when he tells of the royal servant who made a big show directly to his boss of confronting him. One-on-one. In parables as subversive speech, the interpretation that Herzog proposes is that Jesus is justifying his liaison with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in terms of coalition building. He's saying to his disciples that the alternative to their movement accepting to their movement connecting with Zacchaeus on their own terms and accepting his resources and encouraging his redistribution is his making one of those big performative individualistic statements to one of his bosses. Which might amount, as it tragically did in the case of the servant in the parable, to inadvertently ratting out the movement. That servant was not able to see that these movements were motivated by love. But Zacchaeus did see. And that allowed Zacchaeus to connect and contribute to the movement. For someone in Zacchaeus and the royal servant's position of relative wealth and social privilege, the choice is either to seek ways to distribute those privileges down to a mass movement of the oppressed, or to think to himself, well, I agree with their goals, but not their methods, and make the attempt to advocate on behalf of those oppressed people who he's not actively in community or coalition with. To get to the point, the love ethic The ethic of committing to a world of justice, which sees exploitation, repression, colonialism, patriarchy, and related injustices unmade at their very roots, is one which also requires us to learn from mistaken tactics. The ethic of love, of fidelity to the needs of our neighbors near and far, The ethic of justice requires that we look at this parable and the story it is told within and make an honest assessment of where we might fall within it. As a person who has privileges that derive from, in many substantial ways, systems of injustice, I have a choice between being the royal servant 
or being Zacchaeus. And I'm doing my best to be Zacchaeus. <laughs> I have resources that I can share. And if I'm willing to work hard at demonstrating my commitment and good faith, those resources can be shared with movements and do a lot of good. And to return to where we began, that's why that love ethic requires that we give the benefit of the doubt to those who directly confront injustice, even when the way that they do it makes us uncomfortable. Because when the dream has been deferred for so long, that confrontation, that fight, is what love looks like. Love of neighbors who face daily exploitation, state-sanctioned violence, threats to their bodily autonomy, and environmental degradation can look, sound, and sometimes be angry. It can even involve naming an enemy. So the anger of street movements, the strikes, the direct actions can be taken as a sign of the power of love still at work in our fractured world. And as a Zacchaeus, that love presents an opportunity for me to put my privileges and resources at the service of a better world, at the service of the fight. And with enough commitment, we Zacchaeuses can become part of that force confronting injustice. And that means sometimes we might end up among those whose confrontation, is so un whose confrontation with injustice is so intense that we are presumed to be hateful or unloving, that it's assumed that we've forgotten the humanity of those on the other side. But as long as we remain open to the possibility that those who are now complicit will hear the demands of the people and seek their own redemption, we do love our enemies. Because loving our enemies does not look like ignoring harm. It doesn't look like ignoring injustices happening right in front of us so as to remain polite and respectable. It doesn't look like skipping over necessary dialogue with those directly impacted. It looks like finding our place in the struggle, and once we've found it, remaining open to the next Zacchaeus who wants to come and join up and repay fourfold all those they've wronged. May it be so, and amen. Hi, everybody. It's so good to be with you all. And Ben, it's so good to be with you once again, uh, to have you on for our getting the message, and to once again have you uh, preaching uh, in the, from the pulpit for us. Um, a little less skateboarding this time, though. A little less, yeah. Slightly, slightly different theme this time. But yeah, it's great to be uh, great to be back up there, and uh, very nice to be talking with you about getting the message this morning. You know, since we're recording this a few days before, it's not too late for you to decide to on Sunday take a skateboard and skateboard in for like the processional. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what Reverend Skyler would think of it, but uh, it's not too late to try. We'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm being careful of a, a shoulder injury right uh, now, okay. so I haven't been skating lately. But excuses. Excuse. Yeah, maybe maybe it'll pull. You know, maybe it'll pull together. But no, I really um I really loved this message. I thought that it was uh, a challenging topic. I thought that it was 
um, relevant to the moment. Um, what what inspired like this choice? Like, a, you know, this is your your um, final sermon of this year sort of moment. And what what why this choice of theme? Yeah, I have been thinking about it for a long time and kind of mulling it over. And it's a really delicate topic. So I think that there were a couple different strands of of inspiration that went into this. The first was just um, a real frustration that I was experiencing in seeing the way that like social movements, um, some that I've directly participated in, be assumed, at, uh, be presumed uh, hateful or, you know, loveless or whatever, purely because of their being confrontational with powers that we all agree, in many cases on like literally a scientific level, are doing things that are wrong. And I thought that that, that assumption that was just kind of being promulgated in the public sphere was preventing a lot of people from getting involved in those struggles. And I thought that that was really, um, really concerning um, and something that I really have been trying to like think about ways to address because it comes up in, you know, even conversations that I've had with friends and family. So I, I wanted to take this opportunity to think about that. And then the other two inspirations were um, books that I read, one for a class, which is called Parables of Subversive Speech by uh, William R. Herzog III. I took a course in the fall on the parables of Jesus, and it was based on this text. And we reread the parables, reinterpreted them in the light of the socioeconomic and political context of the era of the, the beginning of the Jesus movement before it was even, you know, codified or like structured into anything that we would recognize as Christianity, like when it was just like this, you know, band of miscreants um, roaming through uh, the, uh, the Roman Empire. And um, the last parable that we read was the parable of the 10 pounds. And I thought that the new light that Herzog and our class put it in was really powerful and had some very important lessons about um, what a um, what privileged people should do to contribute to movements for social justice, and then the the final thing that kind of tied both of those things together um, and helped me kind of figure out what I had been grasping for um, is this book All About Love by Bell Hooks um, that I've been reading since class is finished up. And one of the early chapters is on the love ethic. And she talks about 
the um, the the elements of um, knowledge, like real, just like clear, rational knowledge and responsibility that are part of the love ethic, because her her understanding of love is on is extending oneself to take care of and to promote the the spiritual growth and like the essential well-being of others and that was when it clicked for me that it was like okay yes that is like that's a, a really clear working definition of love that i think is is very apt and can help me explain both why I think these confrontational social movements are essentially loving, both in that they're advocating, you know, with um, people who are experiencing direct harm and at their best are led by people from those communities that are experiencing that harm, but are also loving to the people that they confront insofar as they leave room for the possibility of turning away from committing those wrong acts. Right. You know, I think uh, one of the one of the big terms that is used more recently is like uh, respectability politics that we got to yeah. play play by the game and we got to play by the rules and we've got to uh, <clears throat> be nice to to those that are actively seeking to cause us harm. Um, and uh, you know, I think about as you as you're uh, talking at the end there. I think about um, that. Um, <clears throat> that uh, I think it was Friere, um, if I remember right, who talks about how that liberating from oppression is liberating both the oppressor and the oppressed. Yes. Yeah. And pedagogy yeah, of the absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I think that that's such a such a case. I I have also read all about love, um, uh, and it's a great book. It changed my life back in. I think I read it back in the late 2000s, and it, I think it helped me steer away from the more evangelical Christian world I had grown up with. Interesting. Um, and, uh, but I have not read The Herzog. I'll have to do that. I, um, yeah. You know, I when I first read it, I'm like, oh, isn't that the guy that makes movies? But then I was like, <laughs> not for The Herzog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, different. I've, I've been to seminary. I should know this. I should. Different I should recognize fella. the different name. Yeah, actually, it's funny that you bring up um, Paulo uh, Freire, Freire. I'm, I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. I've heard it pronounced it. like eight different ways. So yeah. Um, F-R-E-I-R-E -E for listeners who might be curious. Um, his, his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is actually what um, Herzog uses to reread the parables. So... In Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Freire develops this concept of conscientization and humanization and talks about these things as like the, the vocation of oppressed and exploited peoples. And Herzog sees that as the modern as a modern analog for what he thinks. Um, Jesus was trying to do with his like social work with his his efforts as um, 
as like a leader of like a specific community of people who you can learn in the Herzog book lived under just horrible conditions. Like these were people who had, you know, had the, the land stolen out from under them by Roman colonization and fell into this class of day laborers where your life expectancy once you were there was five to seven years. And Jesus is talking to people in those desperate conditions and trying to build a movement based on radical love. And he says a lot of really confrontational things. Like there are things in the Sermon on the Mount that are like really like fighting words. Um, and in this, in this parable and in the, the context of it, that I try to lay out in, in my sermon, I think we learn a lot about why the loving thing for people like us who are more privileged than those directly um, centered by these movements, the loving thing for people like us to do is to understand that these are movements that come from a place of compassion and the anger is, is righteous. And so we should be moved by that love of humanity to find ways to put our resources at the service of people doing that work. Most definitely. And I think that that's, you know, a, a good call to, to our congregation as a congregation that is in, you know, perhaps one of the, uh, more privileged areas of New York City mm -hmm. to remind us to to be doing this this hard work and to let ourselves be confronted sometimes I think too yeah um, <clears throat> that that it's okay to have our lives disrupted and confronted I'm yeah. curious as I as I think about our congregation as I think about your classes uh, we are yeah. this is the this this sermon marks the ending of your internship. How are you feeling? What are your big takeaways? What have been the ups and the downs? You know, what do you what do you want to share in a few in a few minutes about how this internship has been for you? We I know that speaking as the DRE, you know, we've loved having you around. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I feel I feel really really good about my time at Fourth U. Um, I have felt very um, very loved by the the congregation and have felt very able to grow in ways that I did not expect to. And I've just been so, so lucky to be able to spend this time at Fourth U. And um, that's, you know, been, that's, that's taken a lot of different forms um, doing you know, various things on Sundays and going to meetings and seeing kind of like the, the inner workings of stuff and the small group that I've had the privilege to convene. Um, it's all just been so, so rich. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the congregation and to the leadership for inviting me in in the way that they have. been a it's been a privilege to have you here um i yeah i've i've enjoyed it and so ben thank you so much both for your time here as an intern but also for this message today 
um, you know, may we continue to be confronted and practice this love ethic, all of these good things. Thank you for, for a great message and a, a great year, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good to see you. Take care, everybody.